Welcome to Researching Happy. This is episode seven. Um, so this is a podcast all about the research world, um, the stories behind the studies related to you know well-being, happiness, mental health. Today we have a really special guest, someone who I think is an absolute inspiration um, in the field. Um, that is Professor Micah Bartles. So Micah is a professor in genetics and well-being, and I'm, you know, I'm sure you'll be as impressed as I am when you hear her commitment to academic rigor, um, to collaboration, and 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 just to generally improving the um, the quality of the field. So, um, Micah is the president of the International Positive Psychology Association, and um, you know, you you hear a little bit more about that, but really interesting to hear um, some of her initial thoughts of positive psychology, and and now in the role as president. Um, some of the changes that she's been implement, implementing and I look forward to sort of seeing that at the upcoming IPA conference um, in a couple of months time. So enjoy um, a couple of comments just on the on the show itself. So uh, firstly, just a, a really genuine thank you to the people who have been listening so far. Um, there's a growing audience, which is also really obviously nice to see. Um, people from really like many countries from around the world, which has been a surprise. Um, and and just to thank you, like every week I've kind of put a call out to people to say like, just let me know what you're thinking. If you're hearing this right now, just let me know. I'm really open to feedback. I want to hear ideas and concerns. If I'm doing annoying things, like let me know. I'm probably not noticing it. I think I say I'm a fair bit. Oh, I was about to say it again. Um, oh, and then there it is. What I'm hoping to do, I think I said this like right from the very beginning, is I want to have this, try and build this show into a community of of like-minded people who don't generally get a chance to have these types of discussions. Uh, and so what I want to do is probably in the next month is to try and organize like a Zoom catch-up for people who are listening. So what I'll do is I'll tap people on the shoulder who have contacted me um, and and let's, let's try and build this thing. Um, said I'm again. I could edit it out, but that would just be not fun. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Please like and share and subscribe. Um, said it again. What? Yeah, I've said this a few weeks in a row now, but just if you hear this thing and you think that's such an important message, this person needs to hear that, just send it to them. That's kind of the sharing that I'm interested in. Don't worry about posting it on social media and stuff like that would also be nice, but just send it to one other person for whom this would be a really relevant message. So anyway, I'll stop talking. Thank you so much and welcome Micah. So we are seriously honored to have Micah Bartles with us this uh, this episode. Uh, Micah, I've got a brief biography about you here. Uh, I hope that it's accurate. I should probably start checking with guests, but anyway, that's okay. So Micah Bartles, Professor Michael ba Micah Bartles is the University Research Chair Professor in Genetics and Wellbeing at the Department of Biolog Biological Psychology at the University of Amsterdam. She has published over 250 papers in peer-reviewed journals, including the first molecular genetic evidence for well-being in PNAS and the first genomic variant for well-being in nature genetics. She is the president of the International Positive Psychology Association, and we're really, really happy to have you on. 
Welcome. Thank you. Well, one correction. Yeah, tell <laughs> we me. We have two universities in Amsterdam, and uh, I'm at the VU University. Okay. And that's not the University of Amsterdam. Oh, I'm Just so sorry. Correct. Can <laughs> I tell you the honest truth? I was too frightened to uh, pronounce. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Cool. Yes. VU. VU at Amsterdam. VU okay, thank you makes, very much. It, makes, makes it all. Yeah. Great. Okay, cool. I'll know that for next time. So, um, welcome. What, what, uh, what, have, what have you been up to? What's your team working on? Wow, we're working on many things. Um, we have this like one overarching question, and it's why are some people happier than other people? That, that's the main question. Yeah. Um, and we have a background in genetics, and nowadays also in multi-omics, like epigenetics, metabolomics, all that kind of biological material. Um, so that's one side. Uh, we are very interested in the exposome, so everything that you are exposed to from conception onwards uh, mm -hmm. and how that interplays with your genetic background. And also always how to measure well-being. Um, and we are doing very cool work with trying to measure well-being via social media data, with social media text mining. Uh, we're doing smartphone studies uh, and we're also going to use uh, Spotify playlists to try Seriously? to find people's happiness. Wow. I just on Spotify, I guess you can, uh, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify and I'm sure if you're listening to it, you must be really happy or maybe miserable. I'm not sure. We'll find out. We'll find out. Oh, that's really exciting. So you, you're a professional in, in genetics, like how, you know, genetics and well-being is not something that I think most people would guess comes together so tell tell us how did you start how did you yeah well i started actually uh well i was always fascinated by differences between people uh and uh, i loved biology at high school um so uh, that was a good combination uh, and i started my phd research on trying to understand why the development of children was different so why do some children develop problem behavior and emotional problems and others not and that was very interesting work with data from the large Netherlands twin register. Uh, but at, in the end, um, I actually found out that the majority of children, but also the majority of adolescents and the majority of adults is actually doing pretty well. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's why I shifted to the other side and uh, I'm more fascinated by why do we still feel well in a very complex society uh, and how can some people survive while others struggle more. Uh, and always, uh, you can't ignore genetics differences between people. So I do everything in genetically informative designs. So, so that's how I brought it together. Yeah, okay. Can you give us a bit of a um, brief summary of what do you mean by genetically informed design? Yeah, so, well, maybe first the, 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 fi the overall finding is that differences yeah. in happiness between people uh, are for 40% accounted for by genetic differences between people. Meaning that some people uh, have a genetic predisposition or a sensitivity to be happier than other people, while some people uh, lack this sensitivity and they probably are less happy in the end. Um, important, if it's genetic, doesn't mean it's determined. It just makes you more sensitive or less sensitive. So for people with a high genetic load for well-being, it's easier to be happy than if you don't have that genetic load. Um, Genetically informative designs vary a lot. So you have uh, the classical twin design where you compare identical twins and fraternal twins. You could extend that in any direction by adding brothers and sisters or so siblings or by adding parents to study intergenerational transmission. 
And of course, over the past 25 years, there's a lot of development in molecular genetic design. So really collecting DNA and trying to sort out where on the human genome are these locations that actually contribute to happiness. Wow. Okay. And so <clears throat> I just on the 40%, I remember the, at the conference, uh, the IPA conference in Melbourne, you sort of, you had a, one of the keynotes and you sort of stood up there next to the, that sort of pie graph, that pie chart. Uh, and I think the pie chart roughly says like this percentage of uh, people, uh, their, their well-being is genetically determined. This percentage is ge determined by what was it like? Maybe like their li life circumstances. In incidental events. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, <clears throat> the last proportion was like what's left in your control. And when you look at that graph, it looks like, you know, 3% is within your control. Yeah. And I just rem it's stuck in my mind because I think you kind of told off the whole audience, which was really <laughs> which was really like i was like oh well I, I i didn't even know about this thing but now i feel like i've been making this mistake you said that's not the way to interpret it so would you like to sort of clarify that now yeah i'm so glad you bring this up because this is actually my main aim in life is to make this understandable to people so what the the research between family data shows our research but all around the world and we brought it all together is that 40 percent of the differences between people are accounted for by genetic difference. So we're talking about the variance of a population. What often happens, uh, for example, in the book of Sonja Leobimirski, who also now says that is incorrect, is that this is often translated to the individual level. So people start interpreting this as 40% of my happiness is in my genes, which is not the case because we were studying variants. We're not studying stuff at individual levels. So that is where people often go wrong. If you go to the individual level, we have all different genetic predispositions. So I might have a very high load for happiness and well-being. Well, I've met you several times, uh, always smiling. So I, I, I think I can actually uh, predict that your genetic load is also relatively high. But you, okay. we also all know people that have this uh, basic feeling of not feeling very happy. And yeah. probably that basic feeling is the genetic predisposition. So the genetic load varies between individuals, but if you talk about differences between people, so explaining variance, uh, that is the 40%. Okay, there you go. So not, so not so relevant then when you're considering an individual. Yeah, I do remember you once told me I have a genetically happy face. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which is like true, yeah, that, that is... That is one of the other fascinating things. Uh, genetic effects don't uh, happen in isolation, of course. Uh, even from like just uh, even from preconception onwards, but the environment is always there. Yeah. Uh, so that's fascinating, uh, what, and you can consider that to be either correlated or in an interaction. But with your happy face, uh, we consider that to be a, a gene environment correlation. So okay. due to your genetic makeup, your happy face, you get a different response from the environment than people that have a less happy face. Yeah. Makes your life easier, but I think from very young onwards, people always respond very positively to you because you smile and have shiny <laughs> eyes. Uh, and that makes your life easier. And, and your face is completely built by your genotype. So your genotype actually dictates how the environment responds to you. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And, I mean, and you're I, an example, indeed. I, 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 I think I even took a picture because I really want to study this in more detail. Any pictures of people? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine, like, say, this is maybe a dumb example, but 
uh, I've always thought that a lot of people like ask me for the time. I mean, it doesn't happen now that everyone has a mobile phone, but it used to be that people would ask me and, and I just felt like that happened quite a lot. And maybe then if you're a person with a genetically happy face or like an approachable face, you probably exactly. think that society is like more trusting or something, more trustworthy because you're more often having those types of interactions. And always positive interaction. And if you turn that around, if you, for example, think about very young children or young children age four or five, uh, if you don't have like this happy face or this more happy behavior, you might be a bit grumpy in the morning, for example, or you cry easily, then you get way more often a negative response from your environment than when you are when you're this happy child. Uh, mm. And this is your whole life. So th th that has a huge effect in the end. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, people would, we, we are now of an age, like I am of an age with my, my wife and stuff where we've got little kids and our friends have little kids. And, and it is easy, like, it's probably something for us to consider as parents, like just because maybe one of our, our friend's kids like have a grumpy look on their face, like to still, to sort of like look yeah. past that, you know, because um, exactly, it's actually yeah. maybe having a, a negative effect on them. Yeah, and, and in general, uh, I always hope that that's the skill of school teachers as well, because of yeah. course they work with a like, big variety of children, that they actually can interact with each child in a positive way, uh, which is probably not easy. Yeah, no, probably not. <laughs> probably not. It's a long year. My wife is actually a school teacher, so I don't <laughs> think it is very easy. Um, so then, so then, like, what other things? So you're taking obviously into account um, the genetics. What um, what about things like personality then? Um, do you, does that factor into genetics, like the genetic component of personality, or is that something separate again? Like what other factors? Yeah, no, we recently uh, conducted a study where we uh, looked at the overlap between well-being and, and, and personality, and it has also been done in the past. And in the past, the conclusion was uh, with a very nice title for a paper, well-being is just a personality thing. Uh, and we... Uh, well, we replicated the study, but not the results. So we had a okay. way bigger sample with longitudinal data. And we showed that there is in, at, indeed an association between personality and well-being. Uh, but it's not completely the same thing. So uh, mm. your personality helps. So openness, for example, is positively related. Neuroticism is negatively related to well-being. Uh, but it's not that well-being doesn't exist because it's totally built of personality characteristics. Yeah, interesting. That's something I do want to get to in, in maybe in a, in a moment, that idea that, you know, the, the, the importance of replication in science. Um, but more importantly, what I think I just heard from you then is that a, a, a probably a, a better um, design study with a larger sort of sample size and therefore statistical power can actually undo the results that people often take for granted. Um, I've, I've been seeing that on Twitter recently. That's been happening with alcohol, I think. You know, there's always been these sort of, uh, I mean, I'm, I don't know whether you would call them underpowered studies, but like sort of epidemiological studies saying that alcohol, you know, like a glass a day is good. And now I think these very precisely de de designed um, interventions are actually now showing like even two glasses a week might be too much. Yeah. yeah and I think that, that the, the field of genetics is the perfect example because there has been a lot of development. So there has been times. So first we started with twin analysis, showing yeah. that things are heritable. Then we want to try to find the genes. And we started with methods that we call Canada genes. So we picked one gene, uh, the serotonin transporter, for example, and tried to link yeah. that to well-being in relatively yeah. small samples because genotyping was very uh, expensive back in the days. Mm -hmm. 
all these studies are found to be actually uh, worthless because there's not one gene, sample sizes are way too small. Uh, then we discovered the genome-wide association studies, and that's huge. So we do studies with millions of people uh, and with millions of genetic variants together in one study, uh, really needing the power to understand what's happening. Uh, and I think that for the, at least the field of psychology, the, the lack of power, so the lack of big samples is, is a huge mm. problem. Yeah, I often do wonder whether it's where that comes from. Uh, uh, you know, is it... Because I think, you know, we would be guilty of that. I think everyone's guilty of it in, in some respect. Like you're underfunded, so you you know, you can't you can't do the studies you wish you could do. That's part of the sampling issue. But then there's also I guess the thing that people are beholden to, which is to try and go and publish their studies and get them out there because that's kind of be becomes your um your resume. So yeah, but I think if you if you talk about uh, scientific integrity, that that yeah. you should realize that actually conducting an underpowered study is a complete waste of money. So exactly. Yeah. Um, and and what we also showed in the field of genetics, and I think should be implemented in the field of positive psychology way more, is collaboration. Yes. So there are many ways of combining data sets, uh, statistical ways. Uh, so you can also increase your sample by not collecting all these data yourself. Yep. but by either collaborating with people that have similar data or by linking your data to external databases that exist anyway. Mm. Um, and the power should really be at the basis of your study. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and definitely scientific integrity and well-being, that's something I, I definitely <laughs> want to get to in a minute. But so what kinds of data sets are you working with? So you've got a twin registry in the Netherlands. Yeah. Who, who set that up? Was that that was before your time or? Yeah, that was yeah that was before my time. Uh, so that was set up by two of my colleagues who are uh, a bit older than I am. Uh, and we are uh, the beauty of the Netherlands twin registers that we uh, started in 1987, uh, and we started in two ways. We started collecting uh, parents with their newborn twins. And we really? have been following them now for 35 years, even more. Wow. Uh, and we also invited adult twins. And for the newborn twins, that is still a continuous process. So we started with newborn twins in 1987, but every other year we, we did the same thing. So we have newborn twins of this year and last year and the year before, and they are all been followed over the years. So we have wow. a large database, but also a longitudinal database. Um, and how many twins are we talking about, roughly? Well, we have. It's hard to define the exact number of twins because it's a constantly varying oh, number. Okay. We have okay. about two hundred thousand active participants. Wow! So that's twins or parents or siblings of twins, um, but the majority of it is part of a multiple themselves. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And uh, I mean, like triplets as well, or just twins? Yeah, a couple of triplets. Uh, and even uh, I don't know why that's more, relevant, but, but uh, that, that's, that's very rare. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. And so do you feel like you're getting closer to that answer of the differences between people in, when, when you're saying why, is, why are some people happier than others? Do you feel, I know that's like a, the terrible question to ask someone that's a researcher, but... Well, I know, well, closer. And I always say it's, it's one very big puzzle a very complex puzzle and every time we add a piece and sometimes we have to remove a couple of pieces yeah so it's a very slow process but 
Uh, there are a lot of developments, uh, like I said, at the, the side of the generation of data uh, and also about processing data and of course with statistical methods with the new uh, developments in machine learning where we can just put everything into the mix. Uh, that helps and I'm really a data-driven person so uh, yeah. we're getting closer and closer but the more you put in the mix the complexer the picture becomes. So, mm. Uh, mm. I, don't, I don't think, well we we know a lot for sure, so the heritability estimate of 40% and that genes do matter, that is clear, that's robust. We're now doing actually this study in different twin registers all around the world and it's even stable if you compare the Netherlands to Brazil for example, which is fascinating by itself because it's genes and environment. Um, so that's robust, but and also we have some genetic findings at the molecular level, but to understand the biological process and then even more fascinating, the interplay with the environment. Uh, mm. Well, that is that is a road we, we, we're currently on, but uh, cool. not, not close to the finish. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> How long have you been doing? When was like your first study published? Do you remember your first well-being and genetics? Like specifically about well-being and genetics? 2005? Yeah, okay. Was, was really the link between genetics and well-being. Wow, um, yeah. yeah. Just I after think my like, PhD, so... Oh, there you go. So I wonder, like, I wonder um, how people that are not like in the research world, how they hear, how they interpret that. Like, you know, here's someone, a professor that's been working for 20 years <laughs> on the same topic. Uh, and like very, like, I mean, obviously you're doing amazing things. You've got an incredible team and, and you are, I think, answering a lot of these questions. Um, but it's a long and slow process, right? Yeah. And I think that's very important to emphasize that it's a complex system that we are studying and it's a very slow process and i think yeah for example if you go back hopefully back to the covid19 pandemic as it being history um there we actually were confronted by the fact that we didn't have scientific evidence and science is slow so yeah. we're now actually working on data on of on the effects of covid on what happened to people um and so we should also think about uh, research that has parallel implementation processes so we mm -hmm. the whole idea that everything should be evidence-based i'm i am a researcher so i love the evidence i love data-driven research but we can't always wait till we have the final answer because that will take ages so yeah. we should like work together and, and that's also a plea again for collaboration with different collaboration. disciplines uh, to get things done so what kind of collaborators would be the best collaborators for your work? So you obviously have the genetic skill set, um, you know, within your team, I mean, broadly, like what is it that you would be looking for in, in terms of collaborators? Well, first of all, we, we collaborate with uh, people that develop, for example, uh, apps. We're now going to do a study in twins uh, to do well-being interventions to oh, yeah. see if uh, who responds to what, uh, okay. essentially. Um, and, and we don't have the resources nor the knowledge to build our own apps. Uh, so uh, we use uh, uh, small medium enterprises that, that do gamified apps and that's, that kind of stuff. Uh, that's important. And, and of course, we always want to work with policymakers uh, because we, we have findings, although it sounds strange from, because I talk about genetics, we also study the environment. And actually, the only way to study the environment is in a genetically informative design. Uh, and so, for example, we found in one of our studies that if you take all the environment 
environmental data that are possible based on your postal code, like air pollution, green space, prices of houses, sports facilities, educational mm -hmm. facilities, all that kind of stuff. Put it all in the same model uh, and you correct for socioeconomic status because first of all, it's all socioeconomic status. We yep. know that we have to find out how to solve that. But if you correct for socioeconomic status, the only factor that actually matters is safety. So I really? think for policymakers, that's a very important findings that regardless of socioeconomic status of families, neighborhoods, safety is still a key factor for well-being of people. Really? So, so let me just make sure I, made, I understood that. So when you looked at what is the factor that best explains someone's well-being, or I'm guessing the lack of their well-being? Well, actually, what's the factor that, that is still significant if you have all the factors uh, in one model? Okay. Wow. So, of course, like genetic effects, environmental effects are also small. So it's not that if we improve safety all around the world that everybody would be ridiculously happy. But um, yeah. it is one of the environmental factors that it's actually that you can change and that you can improve. Um, and that affects well-being. Wow. Great. Cool. Interesting. So, um, and obviously then that makes sense with the policy. Mm -hmm. Um just on that then with policy i'm just thinking like what what's what's the well i'm kind of interested um in the sort of the dialogue across the netherlands in in terms of well-being so you know we we've been working with um some researchers at university of twente um really really pleased it was kind of like every time obviously i work with uh you as you know van Agteren, who's who's also from, uh, is also dutch every time we're looking at these papers and we're going oh this is a really cool paper where's it from netherlands again netherlands again <laughs> netherlands like there seems to be there's a huge amount of uh, research interest there. Is that translating? You know, it's kind of like you've got so many experts there. Is that translating into the government? Mm, no. Okay. <laughs> no. You didn't have to think uh, about no, it. No, actually, uh, well, that, well, there are a couple, there are of course people that 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 try to talk about and discuss uh, the economy of well-being. Uh, to summarize yeah. it in one sentence. Um, but our society is, is is still mainly driven by our uh, GDP um, measures, uh, and I and my well, to my opinion, we need both. We can't do without any economic process or yeah, progress or money. But um, I think human well-being in the end uh, is way more important. So we have to balance, uh, and and at least. Uh, Consider well-being as an important factor for policymaking. Mm, mm. Okay, and well, okay, cool. So and <laughs> that's kind of uh, it's kind of disappointing, I guess, from the outside because it's like you've got probably like three or four leading professors in the well-being space in the Netherlands. It's not a huge, huge country, so three or four professors, I feel like, is. <laughs> <laughs> He's like pretty good ratio. You mean that our impact is actually absent? Yeah, no. And uh, well, yeah, I think uh, one of the reasons that we have more people focusing on well-being is, of course, that we are uh, a country that is doing well, um, mm -hmm. and it's easier to have a focus also in research on well-being yeah. uh, if you are in a well-developed country. That's of course important. Uh, um, yeah, but there's still this really big uh, gap between policymakers and and researchers, and we we of course try to uh, to bridge the gap, but that's not easy. Have you seen that work well anywhere in the world? 
bridging that gap. Well, no, I'm of course I, I'm of course aware of countries that have uh, focused more on well-being, uh, like your neighbor country in New Zealand, for example. Um, I I don't think that in a lot of policy uh, makings, uh, research is really taken into account. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is that is a big mistake because uh, I see a lot of things developed in the Netherlands, and I think, well, what's the evidence, and why would you invest the, all these amounts of money uh, without knowing if it works or yeah. if it works for whom, which is the most important question. Yeah, for whom, yeah, absolutely. And so, if you had like your magic wand, and you could uh, change like a few things very quickly and and make them oriented towards well-being, what might they be? Well, I think I would I would try to get rid of the one-size-fits-all approach in our educational system. Yeah. Uh, so we have a very well strict, well-developed, well-functioning, but strict educational system uh, with uh, more and more, but still insufficient room for uh, developing your own skills. Uh, mm. So you have to take courses way too long. If you, if you, I, I took languages till I was like. 16 and i hate languages so i i was more oriented on the uh, biology math uh, chemistry courses and still had to invest a lot of time to learn german as an example well that never used it um, <laughs> so i think we should specify way more in the beginning uh, and not in level it's just in interest and skills yeah, yeah. Uh, and make well-being an important part of curricula uh, at any age group uh, in schools, uh, I think would be very important. And not as a main topic, but uh, also as a way to monitor the development of children. So we have a very well-developed pupil monitoring system in the Netherlands for cognitive development. Uh, and we have standardized tests and these data are used to, to actually uh, uh, predict how they will do in the next level of schooling. Uh, we don't have a system like that or not as well developed for uh, uh, mental health uh, and emotional development. So, uh, mm. And data collection would also be the key. If you ask young children uh, three or four times a day, for example, uh, do you feel happy on a scale from zero to ten, for example. Everybody, especially in the Netherlands, because we have a zero to ten system, know what it means to say four, five, six or eight. Yeah. And if you just let them do that, press a button, for example, three times a day for weeks, you have this major database. And I think you can predict the development of a child way better based on these data than on any cognitive test that you do. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, yeah. Okay, cool. Very cool. So that was in schools anywhere else. I was just thinking like, I would imagine that happiness question, it would pick up other things like, you know, how are your conditions at home? You know, that would that would come through, I would imagine, in a, in a child's assessment of, of their happiness. True, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and most importantly, uh, what I also would do is to recommend everywhere and get the money to ask people, to talk to people, because everybody's different. So what we often now do is when we develop, we have to build a lot of new houses in the Netherlands, for example. Uh, and we, we do that, and we already built the houses, and then find the people to buy the houses. And given that we don't have enough houses, that's easy. But still, you should turn around the whole process and first ask people what kind of house do they like. Yeah. Uh, and don't build like these standard neighborhoods. Uh, or think about neighborhoods that develop with the age of the family, for example. Um, 
And and that starts by talking to people. Yeah. So yeah. if you're in a policy or governmental position, I would invest a lot of money by asking people what their idea, same for the safety thing, for example. Safety is a yeah. very complex thing. So what do we mean by safety? Well, yeah. ask people what is safety for them. Yeah, great. Okay, cool. Um, and, and I guess I should ask now you're saying about defining safety I should I guess I should ask a few of my, the episodes previous have been about this but I should ask probably everyone is when we're talking about defining well-being wh what are you sort of thinking roughly well we always uh, work with a very simple uh, definition uh, because you can spend ages on the def definition of well-being yeah. uh, but we uh, we have the definition of feeling well and functioning well mm -hmm. um, and uh, Functioning well means uh, in the situation where you are. So you feel comfortable and well in the situation you are. Yeah. Um, yeah, great. Uh, no, no, uh, no issues there at all. Um, <laughs> well, we, we, of course, well, we, we try to understand hedonic well-being versus eudaimonic well-being. Also yeah. with large data sets, we show that, that there's a phenotypic correlation, but there's also genetic overlap, but not perfect genetic overlap. So there is a lot in the area of how you define well-being. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also there that we should use data to tell us instead of trying to define a theory and find data that fits your theory. That is, uh, so you would like to have a genetically informed definition of well-being? No, not really, but I think you sh what we now do, we, we base our definitions on well, of well-being more on the uh, phys phys uh, philosophical traditions mm -hmm. where the hedonic and eudaimonic comes from. Uh, I think that is on the one hand a fine distinction. On the other hand, if you see that there is a genetic correlation like we did of 0.8, mm -hmm. you, you can wonder if, if it's really that distinct. So I think people okay. always try to find new well-being aspects and it's new and and I, th I don't think there's a lot of new things going on in human beings because we don't change that much over the ages yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I mean, we need to, to again ask people yeah yeah okay great great all right so just i guess then turning to um the world of positive psychology so you're obviously you're the president of of the international positive psychology association that's called ipa um, tell me a little bit. So I would imagine that you have, I, I have a story in my head. I don't know that it's true. I would imagine that it's true. So maybe I'll just tell the story and, yeah. and you tell me if it was roughly like, I would imagine, cause I, I actually did start in a more biomedical science. Um, I was working, I was working in a lab, um, before I found out about this new team that I, that I joined. Um, cause yeah, working with rats and antidepressants really wasn't for me after a certain, uh, certain while. Um, I, I hadn't been to that. I was very junior, I guess, when I, when I moved out of biomed into, into this sort of world, but my f very few experiences of, of, um, sort of like academic conferences and these sorts of things, you know, it was almost like, it was almost frightening to present, I think for, for like young students, because they were worried about the criticism and the, like, not in a, not so much in a negative way, but the criticism of, of, of peers and of senior colleagues and senior sort of. Uh, academics in the space because they'd be questioning you on every decision that you made in your study design 
And then I guess I went to a well-being, more well-being focused conference and I didn't really see that. And we talked a little bit about um, scientific integrity, but also I just like, I guess kind of like, um, sounds rude, I guess to say quality, but sort of academic standards. So I would imagine that you came from a very strict <laughs> discipline of, of genetics and that's extremely strict. Um, so strict that I think it even probably scares away students from genetics, I would imagine. <laughs> Um, and then you've then for whatever reason in your life you find the psychology and the and the positive psychology and, and I would imagine that you might have thought you know this is not like my genetics conference is that but sort of an accurate the, it's a very accurate description of uh, okay. what happened and the fun thing is uh, I really wanted to combine both fields so I wanted yeah. to explore positive psychology more in detail uh, and there are some wonderful aspects of uh, IPA and positive psychology in general is yep. that it's very interdisciplinary and it's, uh, it really has a link between science and practice. Yep. So at the conferences you have scientists and practitioners and they work mm -hmm. together and they are there. And uh, So that's the very positive side. Uh, indeed what you say, um, I, I always have been struggling and, and as a president work on uh, the scientific quality of the work. So uh, my biggest surprise in the, fir the first time uh, I was at the IPA conference in 2004, maybe I don't even remember, um, I saw presentations without even mentioning sample size or yeah. p-value thresholds. And I was just blown away by the strong conclusions that were drawn based on, I, did, I didn't know based on what actually. Yeah. Uh, and I guess just to pause there as well, like you're saying in a, maybe at a genetics conference or if you were a student presenting that, you would be failed yeah. for not mentioning these things. That's how fundamental this information is. Yeah. No, it, it, it starts with sample size and what is your p-value threshold? So where do you base your conclusion on? What do you consider to be significant or not? Um, yeah, so I was trained in, this, in that way that you described. Um, so I was surprised and I was also... Uh, it, it, it almost uh, made me make the decision not to go back again uh, yeah. because at the ball. Also, when you go to a genetics conference, it's more about also meeting new people, getting inspired by new ideas. And so you, you bring a lot and you take a lot. And uh, in the beginning for IPA, it was more, okay, we bring the science and you take it home. And so it, it was a very strange atmosphere to my sense. Um, so then I, I thought, well, I'm not sure if I'm coming back. We also had a well-being or a genetic symposium. And I think we had four people in the audience. Okay. Um, so uh, I thought, well, okay, they are not even interested in the topic. Uh, it's all about believing and, and yoga and, and change well-being. And, and, well. And, well, and then I met Barbara Fredrickson, of course, well-known to many people. Uh, and she's, she's a scientist. And she said, well, if we all step out, uh, that doesn't help. Uh, yeah. So you have to stay on uh, and you even have to try to get a leadership role to, to make the change. Mm -hmm. um, and that, well, that, that has been an interesting uh, experience. Um, I think we are better balanced. So we don't have a main stage filled with only talks about people that believe that happiness is important, but really show data. Yep. Um, on the other hand, we are still uh, bringing together practitioners and scientists. So I think we, we are uh, doing pretty well in that sense. Um, but there's still a lot to, uh, to improve. 
Yeah, look, and I, I think that I, I think you're exactly right. The, the practitioners, it, there are reciprocal benefits. And if I guess like if we're now talking about conferences specifically, if we can, if they could be structured in a way such that the researchers could get um, more out of the um, practitioners and vice versa, then then it makes a lot of sense. It becomes sort of like this this reciprocal sort of um, environment. And so we have the IPA conference coming up. Uh, you're now the president of the the uh the in, the association so what are the sort of changes that you've you've like can a president make big changes i have no idea no okay no. <laughs> it's it's really teamwork so uh and teamwork with a lot of people with different backgrounds so uh yeah uh, um i i can only uh, safeguard uh things like uh if we select abstracts or talks it should be uh sample size should be mentioned for example mm -hmm. Uh, that's important. Um, what we did, um, we introduced the Science for Scientists Day already a couple of years or a couple of conferences ago to also give this day there where scientists can meet uh, and discuss and, and discuss collaborations or whatever. Uh, so to also give the bit of I get something back uh, feeling. Uh, and um, yeah, as, as a president, but I'm also part of the, the, the program team, uh, we really discuss who we invite. Uh, one thing that is uh, still something that I would like to change more, but I'm, I don't know if that will ever happen, is that I'm more used to junior people presenting uh, for yeah. their own development, and they always yeah. present the newest stuff. Uh, and only have like two or three invited speakers. And with IPA, it's still the other way around. It's a lot of invited speaker. It's a lot of the same names, um, which is nice because they do a lot of nice work. But uh, I think we should still make more room for younger and unknown people with brilliant ideas. Yeah, I mean, that's what I hope this podcast can become at some point is, is exactly that. Um, and, and I agree with you. I think I have to admit, like, it's really hard. I think when you're a young researcher, you go like, oh, I'm presenting at this conference. I'm flying to the other side of the world, uh, especially if you're Australia, because everywhere else is the other side of the world. Um, and then you look at the timetable and you go, oh, there's like 17 concurrent sessions, yeah. you know, and I'm just one of four speakers in that. set. you know, it's really, you know, it's like I've come all this way to present in front of like the four people that you were talking about with the genetics yeah. thing before. So I mean, that's, that's cool. I would hope to see that as well. I did always wonder if we did like a sort of like a network analysis of who, like if we just chose like some other field, like, uh, like cardi, like there must be like the international cardiac society or something like, and you looked at how many of the same keynotes keynote those conferences compared to PostPsych. I think they would have much more variety, uh, probably than what PostPsych has had in the past. That's what, what I, well, at least in, in the field of genetics, uh, we, we hardly have the same people uh, speak twice at a conference. Yeah. It just yeah. never happens. Uh. Cool. Okay. Well, anyway, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be there. I, I submitted like uh, three abstracts or something. <laughs> I think my colleagues were laughing because I was saying like, you just want to like, be everywhere <laughs> in the program. <laughs> you want to be everywhere. I said, I just want to make sure I'm there because it's, you know, it's hard to justify why you should be there if you're not presenting, I guess. That's kind really? of how the world yeah. works. Um, but yeah, so, so what, um, what, what are your sort of hopes for positive psychology? And, and I'm really interested in, you know, it, say I, I'm, a, I'm a researcher like many others that don't have any genetic you know, um, aspect to their work. Like, what would you recommend to those people? 
uh, collaboration. Yeah. I think that the thing that that often goes wrong uh, in the broader field of psychology, but in any other uh, area also, is that people think if I don't know it, I should learn it and also do it. Yeah. That's not yeah. the way. I think I have certain expertise and you have other expertise. And we should combine it and we should acknowledge what we don't know. And that's, mm -hmm. that's for scientists is well a, a big step. Uh, but I think if you embrace the idea that you only know a tiny bit of the total puzzle, it mm -hmm. helps a lot in collaborations because, uh, and it also helps that we don't waste money and time on small samples that for, for example, now start collecting genetic data. That would, it would be ridiculous given the existing genetic data around the world uh, mm -hmm. to start a new cohort study somewhere. These data are available, there are possibilities of collaborations. You have the UK Biobank, for example, with 500,000 people. In the United States, they are actually developing similar systems. So I think you should really contact people and say, okay, I have this study. Uh, how should I interpret this with the, the idea that there's also genetic differences? And the other way around, I'm going to do an intervention. Uh, I, I don't have a background in interventions, uh, but I will do it in genetically informative designs. I have my outcomes and I should talk to people that have experience with interventions. What do we see? So it's really, yeah. the key is really collaboration and then really across disciplines. Yeah. And I wonder then, yeah, I mean, and I guess sort of naturally that's the place where that would happen, right? Is at a conference. Um, I'm, I almost find myself like... Um, I don't know if jealous is the right word, but you see these like old photos of, um, I don't know, like, like, you know, Freud and stuff. And they would go to these conferences of like 15, 20 people. I mean, they were all men at that time. Sit, which is, sit and you know, think and talk. <laughs> yeah. They would just sit and think and talk. And I'm kind of, I'm not jealous obviously of the time or whatever, but you know, there's like five of them have won a Nobel prize and they would just, because they were in a small field, I guess, or you know, probably yeah. for all the wrong reasons and whatever there was that opportunity for really knowing your colleagues or, or something like that. And then, you know, we, now these conferences are, are pretty large, like, you know, not just Pulse Psych, but even the rest, they might have 300, 400, 500 delegates. That opportunity for collaboration that you're sort of speaking about, it almost doesn't feel like it exists so much unless you're really lucky. True. That, that's, the conferences are getting too big. And, the, uh, the, uh, and in general, the output in academia is... is well, immense. It's hard to follow uh, all the literature because it's just yeah. too much. Um, so I think you really should, well, work with people and 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 talk to them to also start new collaboration. So mm. talk about your ideas with people you know, and then hopefully they say, well, are you aware that he or she there is doing this? And it's always easy if even if you don't know people, dropping them an email is easy, and they always respond positively because you ask yeah. them about their interest, skills, and knowledge. So that is easy. And I also always tell people just just email me, uh, and we can discuss possibilities. Um, and uh, I think that that could be done. Uh, and and conferences I think are very important face to face. I'm I'm not a big yeah. fan of online stuff. Face to face to to well build your relationship with the people you know and add some new people every time, mm. and building relationships is about trust and seeing people and having fun together. So I think that that's the uh, the idea behind a conference. So actually, right, awesome. to my opinion, the scientific program is uh, 
is actually uh, not the most important thing. It's about meeting the people. So always also go to all the social events, for example. Uh, meeting people is more important. The, the, the scientific stuff, it's in the program. You can Google them. You can find the paper, read it. You actually don't need the presentation. Yeah. You just need to meet the people. So also do your homework before you go to a conference, run through the program and already like find out who you want to meet and look them up at Google or wherever um, to see who they are and, and have some knowledge about their background. And then, mm. well, just introduce yourself and say, hi, I'm... Uh, yeah, hopefully you have a genetic, genetically happy face. <laughs> that works for you. <laughs> it might help. Yeah, it might help. I mean, who knows? Um, all right, amazing. Thank you so much. I, I just had one last question. It's really, um, I don't know if it's a dumb question or not really, but it's really about, I, I just, something that I saw on social media, we've spoken a little bit about this in the past, but um, that you were invited, you know, to go to the Vatican and talk about your well-being research. Like I'm so, uh, when I saw that, I was like just blown away what's what was that about yeah there was actually uh, um jeffrey Sachs and his institution uh collaborate with the scientific institution of the vatican uh, and they created a community uh with a very interesting community of really interdisciplinary people both academics but also uh, people with different religious backgrounds and representations uh, and uh, big companies uh, and we came together. The idea was that we would come together seven times in the Vatican. Uh, due to COVID, it was reduced to only three or four. Okay. And we just spent two days in this, uh, really in the backyard of the Pope, which was amazing because that is where the, normally the wall stops for tourists like me, but we could enter yeah. the gardens and go into one of these buildings. And we were just discussing topic so that was actually more or less along the lines of these ancient conferences that you just described yeah uh, but we are still uh, uh, th that was really nice uh, and then it's always a struggle okay what what really comes out of this are we are we going to produce a book or are we going to apply for funding together and and well with what, a very what was the very group it's that is difficult of course but uh, that's yeah. the aim. What, what was it what was the reason that you were brought together? Due to the fact that we are we're all related to uh, happiness in some mm -hmm. some way, but with totally different backgrounds. Okay, and like to answer a central question or something like this, or well, there were different the different uh, times we came together had the different topics, uh, and sometimes people were invited to give us a presentation about their work. Uh, and the final one, we were all invited to give like a five-minute uh, elevator pitch about what is, what is it, what is important, what did you bring, and what did you take away, and how can we progress? Oh, interesting. That's yeah. interesting because the the first episode of the show was with um, Corey Keys, and he was kind of telling me about the original days of positive psychology, and that they had a pretty similar setup actually that all these sort of actually early career researchers at the time, they were all early career, promising early career brought together um, to do almost exactly the same thing. So, and what will, what will come from that? Is there anything you can share? No, we're still discussing uh, what, what kind of product you would create. Um, the, the average age uh, was relatively high. So that's why a book came up. Uh, and me being a bit, bit younger than the average, maybe, 
I wondered if a book would be uh, the way to uh, to reach people. Mm-hmm. Um, all the other ideas, like your lovely podcast, uh, I think are also nice. Uh, but yeah, that, that's not easy to set up, as you uh, <laughs> might be aware now. Um, so that's one side. So creating something that is based on our discussions for the general uh, population, for society. And on the other end, how to continue the collaboration. So what kind of research do we need to actually bring mm-hmm. this all together? And, mm-hmm. and that is challenging because uh, research money is often uh, within certain areas or maybe a bit interdisciplinary, but it's, it doesn't give the opportunity for really broad collaborations uh, at the moment, but we're exploring uh, ways to do that. Yeah, well, and, and I guess I just wonder like why why the vatican like why you know i'm i'm catholic i'm in, just wondering like why how i how think that was just i think that was just based on the collaboration jeff uh with his institution already had oh uh, uh, okay yeah okay okay interesting and, and i so, think i'm now on twitter i followed the vatican research or academic institution and i think they have more of these things they really try to play a central role in in bringing together uh, on various topics people from around the world yeah okay interesting so i can tell my grandparents that maybe the pope will come on this podcast then if he's uh, if he would like to share this rather than in the book yeah, yeah well, the, the fun thing was <laughs> we, we also had of course lovely dinners served by vatican dressed people to us uh, and also at, in the beginning but the COVID was the big problem uh, one or two people of the group were invited to uh, uh, stay in the building and sleep in the building in the Vatican, where the Pope often also walks around. Um, well, I was not very high on the list, but okay. I never made it. And and after it, uh, COVID, everything changed, uh, of course, yeah. also there. Yeah. Um, and maybe also for security reasons. Uh, wow. That was not allowed I anymore. Could... So I, I, okay. I, I was... Well, one handshake away from the opportunity to sleep in the same building as the Pope. <laughs> but I also said, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I don't have a very strong religious background, so uh, please uh, give the opportunity to other people. Oh, okay. Who might be uh, happier with the opportunity. And I, I would just sure. think it's it's fun but, uh, and interesting. Yeah. But, uh, there you go. I, I uh, can imagine like when you were learning about Gregor Mendel or something like doing genetics, 101 you weren't thinking that this would take you to be uh, in the <laughs> no. post backyard and the president of a positive psychology association so it's no, probably been no, a very different uh, yeah well actually i always wanted to be a medical doctor uh, really well, we have a very strange system in the netherlands still but back in the days when i uh, started university with a lottery system and i never I actually never got in, uh, and, and in the end, given that I studied positive psychology, uh, I was always more interested in healthy individuals anyway, so yeah. maybe uh, that was some kind of uh, protection that I, uh, I'm now actually doing what I want to do and like, uh, instead of being a medical doctor. I still cool. love hospitals, by the way, but... Uh, okay, that's not something you hear very often. No, <laughs> I'm fascinated by hospitals, but I think we okay. also there... And also within the whole field of medicine and especially psychiatry, uh, there's a lot of room for improvement in the direction of yeah. positive psychology and protective factors uh, instead and prevention instead of intervention and risks. Great. And so, I mean, the last thing I'm really conscious of your time and, and thank you again for being so generous to be to be on the show is really like just almost on that 
on where you took that. You know, what is what's the change with your research and the the you know the fantastic team? We didn't really get to talk about your team, unfortunately. But uh, well, I like to you know welcome yeah, well, uh, any no, of them onto the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean they seem they seem really impressive. Um, what is it that you would like to see? What's the change you would like to see in the world? Uh, a focus on everything that goes right. We have, we tend to have this focus on everything that goes wrong. Uh, I think our, the media plays a substantial role in this. Um, and I think we should learn from the things that go right. Uh, in general, uh, a COVID pandemic was an example. We focus on everything that went wrong. And uh, there are a lot of people that actually, about 20% of the people uh, stayed actually or stayed happy or even became happier and we're totally ignoring that fact we're only looking at the people that mm. suffered uh, which we also should do so it's not uh, with the shift of focus yeah. it's a, it's broadening the scope uh, and and the same holds in in, in like for example uh, in the field of psychiatry uh, we try to get rid of problems and risks uh, and we're not looking at okay but are there things that do make you happy or even from a genetic standpoint, we can assess your genetic predisposition for happiness and depression. And based on that, not only on that, because other, other, otherwise people freak out if I say based on genetics, use that as extra information uh, yeah. to make relevant, get a relevant better treatment. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you very much, Micah. That, that's honestly, it's been, um, been a pleasure to have you on and I really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you again. Thank you for the invitation. No problems. All right, so thank you everyone for listening. Uh, thank you again to Micah for for joining me in the conversation. I think that was um, just really insightful, and again, just so impressive the the, the work that she's doing, but also the direction um, and the confidence I think that she's building in the field is just is just um, something that I hope more leaders in this space and more professors will be sort of committing to, um, like like she has been doing. So. Thank you. Um, if you enjoyed the show, please um, let me know. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm really keen for feedback. Um, but like I say, you know, subscribe to the channel so you don't miss more conversations like this. Um, however you're finding it, it's on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Um, but just send it to someone. Like get your phone out now and think who's someone who would benefit from this thing. Um, text it to them or like write them a letter and say, no, I probably don't do that. Text it to them. All right, thanks.